The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 183 Turning Points Jesus Christ and his disciples set out on another tour of Galilee. On this second trip through the region, some special guests accompanied them, including several women. One was Mary, who was from the town of Magdala. At one point, she had been possessed by seven demons, but she had been healed. She would be present at some of the major events of Jesus' ministry. A woman named Joanna was also part of this group. Her husband was the palace steward for King Herod Antipas. Because of this woman's friendship with Jesus, Herod Antipas may have heard a great deal about Jesus Christ and the work God was doing through him. A third woman named Susanna was also with the group, helping with the day-to-day -day work of Jesus' ministry, along with a fairly large number of other individuals. These followers contributed prayers, labor, goods, money, and support to the work Jesus was doing. Aided by these people, Jesus walked throughout Galilee, preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God. The large group traveled through several villages and came to Capernaum, the area they were using as a headquarters. As they walked into the town, People looked out their windows at them. Some passers-by stopped what they were doing and began following at a short distance. Slowly, the crowd began to grow. By the time they reached the house, a large multitude of people had gathered. Jesus' ministry was attracting a huge amount of attention. There were so many people pressing so close to see Jesus that they were stepping on each other. Some of the multitude genuinely sought healing or wanted to hear what this interesting young man had to say. But others had different motives. As word began to spread and people across the town drifted toward where Jesus was speaking, a group of scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem came as well. He is attracting more and more people. This is becoming a dangerous problem. One Pharisee said to another, The Pharisees copied, studied, interpreted, and taught the law from the Holy Scriptures, and they thought no one else had the right to teach about God's law. He keeps preaching about the kingdom of God, another Pharisee said. When the Romans find out what he is saying, and especially when they find out how large his crowds are. They will hold us responsible for not stopping him. These religious leaders did not understand that Christ's message about the kingdom of God was not about something that would replace the Roman government during their lifetime. In fact, it would not replace the governments of the world for another 2,000 years. The group walked toward the house that was already surrounded by a multitude of people. As they drew near, they saw a man pushing his way through the crowd as excited chatter rose around him. I'm healed! 
cried the man as tears of joy streamed down his face. The crowd fell silent to hear him speak. I'm healed! Jesus just healed me! This was too much for one of the scribes. This man is a fraud! He shouted. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. He is possessed by a devil! As the scribes walked forward, the people parted, making a path to the doorway of the house where Jesus was standing. Does Satan cast out Satan? Jesus asked. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it falls. If Satan worked against himself, he would never accomplish anything, and just like that kingdom or that house, his kingdom would fall. He would never give someone the authority to destroy his work. It's just like a stronghold guarded by a strong man. To enter that strong man's house and take his goods, a robber would have to bind him first. Jesus was talking about his victory over Satan in the wilderness. He was pointing out that if he could enter Satan's stronghold and remove people from his control, that proved he was more powerful than Satan. All the things you say, all the blasphemies and sins you have committed during your life, all these will be forgiven, Jesus said. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God, you are in danger of being guilty of an eternal sin, a sin that cannot be forgiven. You know your accusations against me are false but even this can be forgiven. However, choosing to reject God's spirit and attributing the work of God's power to the devil is unpardonable. There is no forgiveness for such sin, neither in this world nor the world to come. The scribes and Pharisees began to argue, but Jesus cut them off. If a tree is good, it bears good fruit. If it is evil, it bears evil fruit, he said. You speak against the Holy Spirit of God? So how can you teach people about the law or speak good things? The mouth can only speak what is in the heart. Good comes from good and evil from evil. Man is accountable for every idle word he speaks. Your words will either justify you or condemn you. His tone left little doubt which category they fell in. You say you are from God. One of the scribes said, stepping forward. Show us a sign that you are who you say you are. No one here believes you, the man said as he swept his arm across the crowd. The only sign you will receive is that of Jonah. Jesus answered, When I die, I will be in the grave three days and three nights before I am resurrected, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well. This was a great turning point in Jesus' ministry. From this point forward, the nation was considered to have rejected the gospel. He would face opposition at every turn. Even his own family thought he was wrong. He taught with such boldness and zeal that his mother and brothers came to try to bring him home, thinking he was a little crazy. But Jesus knew that his true family was the people doing God's work alongside him. Thankfully, some members of his family would later repent they would play prominent roles in the early church of God. Jesus sat in a small boat rocking gently in the light breeze a few yards offshore. Word had gone around that he was in the area and was going to speak. 
curious people had made their way to the shore, sitting on the rocks, the sand, and the docks. A few brought food and were nibbling on bread, fish, or fruit. The arrangement created a natural amphitheater with the water and the hills helping to carry the sound of his voice to everyone. The Jewish leaders had rejected Christ's gospel message, but the work had to go on. Jesus and his followers continued to work in the towns of Galilee, healing many people and preaching to large crowds. Parables were a large part of Jesus' teaching. Parables are often stories from everyday life that teach a lesson. Many Jewish teachers use them as a common teaching method. Religious teachers, called rabbis, often use parables to explain a principle. People were used to hearing this type of instruction. However, Jesus' parables were different. He actually used these stories to hide the meaning from most of the people. They were able to follow the story itself, but they could not understand its real meaning. Jesus did not want these people to understand the full meaning of his parables, because it was not time for them to be called into his church. If he taught them clearly without obscuring what he was teaching, they would be accountable for what they learned. In the parables he gave in Galilee, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, but he had to preach carefully and tactfully or the leaders and the people might have him arrested and executed immediately. Jesus kept firmly in mind his mission to announce the coming kingdom of God, to establish the church of God, and to die for the sins of the world. God was not yet saving everyone. After giving parables to the people, Jesus Christ explained the meaning but only to his disciples. Some parables he gave only to his disciples. These 12 men had been called into his church and had the Holy Spirit working with them so Jesus could expect them to understand and obey what he was teaching. Not all parables were given to the people or the disciples though. Some were given to different audiences, such as the religious authorities of the day. In those cases, the meaning was clear. As the multitude gathered along the shoreline, Jesus began to give different parables, sowing seed on various types of ground, a lamp hidden under a bushel, a seed growing of itself, harvesting a field of wheat mixed with weeds, the growth of a grain of mustard seed, and leaven expanding in flour. The people probably grasped some small meaning from aspects of these parables, but they did not understand what Jesus was really teaching about the kingdom of God. Still, they enjoyed hearing him speak and wanted to hear more. After speaking for a while, Jesus dismissed the multitude to return to the house with the twelve disciples. However, as they pulled the boat into shore, 
and tied up at the dock. The people remained, eager for more parables and more miracles. The multitude followed them to the house. Then Jesus turned and addressed the crowd. Thank you for coming today, he said. But I must speak with my disciples privately. Have a good day. The crowd reluctantly dispersed. As they entered the house, the disciples began to pester him with questions. They had been listening to all the parables, and they were curious, especially about the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tears. Jesus then began to explain the parables he had given to the multitudes, and why he had given them parables in the first place. To you it is given to understand now, he said as they sat down at the dinner table. But to them it isn't given yet. He then proceeded to tell them several more parables, but in more detail than those he had shared with the multitudes. As they finished eating, Jesus looked at all of them. Do you understand these things? The men nodded. Unlike the large crowd, the disciples realized the deeper meaning behind these analogies and stories. I am glad, Jesus said. Now let's plan the next leg of our trip. The next stop for Jesus and his disciples was across the Sea of Galilee in the country of the Gerasenes. This area lay southeast of the Jordan River entrance to the sea and was mostly inhabited by dark-skinned natives descended from the Canaanites. The Canaanites had inhabited the land when Israel conquered it during the time of Joshua. As they traveled through the rough, hilly country, they passed by an area of tombs. Suddenly, there was a commotion, and two men came skittering out like spiders. What have we to do with you, Jesus? One of the ragged men howled in a horrible voice. Have you come early to torture us? Is it judgment time already? Leave us alone. As the men drew closer, Jesus prepared to cast out the twisted spirit beings who had taken control of them. No, no, screamed the other man. Do not cast us out and make us wonder. Please, let us just go into that swineherd grazing over there. Have mercy. Jesus looked at the two cringing, pitiable men and said one word. Go. Suddenly, the ragged men began to breathe easier, but the pigs began to tremble, then to buck and squeal. They ran aimlessly in different directions for a few minutes, then suddenly ran over the steep hills and tumbled into the ocean. The men who have been watching the pigs looked with wide eyes at the small group of travelers then at their valuable livestock squealing and drowning in the Sea of Galilee. They took off running toward town. As Jesus and the disciples entered the town, it was clear that the swine herders had already reported what had happened. Dozens of people came out to meet them, and the elder came forward. You are not welcome here, he said. You bring a curse on our herds and trouble on us. 
We want no part of this. When it was obvious that the reception wasn't going to get any better, Jesus and his companions turned and headed back toward Capernaum. It was not the first time that the people and the message of God were rejected, and it wouldn't be the last. As the boat nudged against the dock in Capernaum, word spread quickly that Jesus had returned. As a crowd began to form, a distraught man made his way onto the dock. His clothing and appearance indicated he was a prominent man. The disciples who were from the area recognized that he was Jairus, one of the rulers of the local synagogue. Please, you must come, Jairus said. My daughter is very sick. Jesus nodded to his disciples. They finished tying the boat to the dock and stowing their equipment. Then they stepped onto the dock and made their way through the group of people following Jairus. Who touched me? Jesus suddenly said, stopping for a moment. The disciples looked at each other, then at the dozens of people surrounding them. Probably several people had touched or bumped into Jesus. So why would he ask that question? They did not realize that he had sensed that something miraculous had happened. A woman came forward from the crowd, bowing her head. My Lord, I touched you, she said. For twelve years I have suffered bleeding that would not stop. I went to many doctors, but they were no help. When I heard of you, I knew that if I could just touch your garment, I could be healed. Then she smiled broadly through tears of joy. And I have been healed. The moment I touched your garment, I felt the bleeding stop and knew I was healed of this plague. Jesus smiled. Daughter, take comfort, he said to the woman. Your faith has made you whole. This healing had not come from touching Jesus' clothes. It came because God rewarded her faith. Subjects of kings customarily knelt and touched the hem of the king's robe to show submission and loyalty. She had treated Jesus like a king. She had humbly accepted his authority and believed that he could heal. The men continued through the streets of Capernaum, then turned down the street near the synagogue, which was across from Jairus' home. Suddenly, the sound of wailing and mournful music emanated from one of the windows. Jairus' expression changed, and he staggered as if he had been struck by a stone. But it wasn't his body that was hurt. It was his emotions. The wailing meant that they were too late. Two of the disciples grasped Jairus' arms to steady him, and they slowly walked him toward the house. He was speechless and had trouble breathing as grief flooded over him. A number of family members and friends filled the large home, and it was difficult to get through the doorway, but the group made way as the disciples, Jairus, and Jesus approached the entrance. 
The wailing momentarily ceased as Jairus entered his home. Upstairs, in a bedroom, where toy dolls sat on the windowsill, his young daughter lay motionless. She was already dead. As Jesus followed Jairus into the house, an older woman wiping away her tears looked at him. How do you know the family of Jairus? Are you here to mourn too? No, Jesus said gently but boldly. I am here to wake her up. She's not dead, she is sleeping. The people crowding the room looked at the newcomer in shock. What a thing to say. The girl had definitely died. Was he speaking symbolically? Was he trying to give Jairus false hope? Some of the people's emotions quickly turned from sorrow into indignation. They looked at Jesus with scorn. One of Jairus's brothers snorted. What do you fail to understand? He demanded. How can you muddle our emotions? When our beloved niece lies dead, we have been here. We have heard her crying night after night. We have prayed. We have ached with her. We heard her last breath. We have had our hearts broken. Now, she is gone. What is wrong with you to say that she's only sleeping? Jesus took control of the situation. Everyone out, he said firmly. The crowd, stunned and a bit confused, sensed the authority with which he spoke and complied. After they exited into the courtyard, Jesus, his disciples, Jairus, and his wife went upstairs. Inhaling deeply, Jairus led them to the bedroom, and they entered. In the room where she had been born, where her mother had nursed her, and her father had rocked her to sleep, in the bed where she liked to look out the window and count the stars, lay their daughter, but she did not sit up, happy to see them, eager to ask them questions and tell them stories, yearning to hug them and be swept up into their arms. She lay still, unmoving. Jairus's wife began to collapse. Steadying her, Jairus walked with her a few steps forward. Then both dropped to their knees at the bedside of their beloved daughter. Full of sadness, Jairus turned to look at Jesus. He said nothing, but the look in his eyes was one of great loss. Jesus walked forward and leaned over the parents to take the dead girl's hand. The skin was pale and growing cold. In a strong, clear voice, he spoke. Little girl, I say to you, arise. As her parents looked on, the girl moved. She sat up in bed and looked around the room, stretching her arms. Daddy, Mommy, where have you been? Jairus's wife wailed with emotion and joy. Their little girl was alive. She and Jairus wrapped her in hugs and kissed her weeping almost uncontrollably. Again, Jairus looked up at Jesus, this time with a look of immense hope and incredible gratitude. 
and not a drop of sorrow or doubt. Jesus smiled. Make sure she gets something to eat soon, he said. She will be very hungry, and do not tell anyone about this. Despite his admonition, there was no keeping this under wraps. The news traveled across Capernaum like the wind. More healings occurred that day, and more would happen in the future. But the healing of Jairus' daughter would attract hundreds of people to Jesus' message and catch the imagination of the Jews. If this man could raise a girl from the dead, then he could lead the nation. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the resources tab at pcg.church.